Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Are you rolling with the dubs against Dallas? Are you rolling with Boston over Miami? Are you rolling with the Avalanche now that Jordan Binghamton is gone for the St. Louis Blues? However and whenever you may be betting, BetOnline is the place to stop during the remainder of the basketball and hockey playoffs. Use our promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody i hope you all are having a fantabulous day it is may 25th according to my count it may not be that according to your count but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever You may be listening. We are going to be joined here today by Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo. They cover the Arizona Cardinals, different platforms. Uh, I met Joe through the Arizona Cardinals podcast that I produce with Walter called the Red Rain Podcast, which you can get wherever you get podcasts. And he runs a YouTube channel and he's a sociology professor and we talk about social science stuff a lot around the NFL with him and Walter. Him and Walter did a fun little experiment that that you'll uh, hear me explain in a second uh, that breaks down their fun research. So we talked for about two and a half hours. Half of that conversation you're going to hear today, the second half of that conversation will play next week as part of another Walter Mitchell Power Hour. It was a long convo. I think it'd be best to just break it down into two podcasts. So with that being said, let us welcome in Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo to talk about fandom and social sciences and all kinds of weird stuff around sports. But um, you guys did a fun little thing last week. It was uh, a bit of a social experiment, shall we say, about fandoms and optimisms and things like that. And I wanted to do one of these podcasts anyways, again, because they're very fun. It's just that you guys had a perfect reason to because... You made this whole wonderful, are people opt- how people root for fandoms and optimism and naivete and what works best for the individuals, which is my expertise, because I like to say I love rooting for losers. <laughs> and growing up in San Diego, um, you, you learned very, like my, my formative moment as a sports fan was the Chargers leaving San Diego. And so that's kind of my, kind of like my Matrix moment where I realized like, all of this stuff isn't as serious as I Your loyalties don't have to be as intense as some people portray them to be, especially because, like, I didn't want to root for the team anymore. And, like, learning that 
if you if you withhold your dollars, that's a way you can possibly instigate change and, and things you don't like in organizations. So, uh, Joe, I'll defer to you first because you wrote the the great piece over on Revenge of the Birds um, about this idea. And then I'll, we'll ask Walter about the poll that he came up with also at some point here. Yeah. So, you know, I I I do as you know you know, and I'm, I'm sure. Maybe people who are listening to this may not know. I do a YouTube channel, you know, uh, with content for my team, the Arizona Cardinals, which also over the years has taught me how to enjoy sports without necessarily enjoy winning. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I kind of take this approach that's, that's a little more optimistic than I think some fans in terms of I want to look at, okay, you know, what are the scenarios under which things could work out what you know what what's the what's the team trying to accomplish what's their goal what's their plan what's their strategy and let's you know let's give them a little bit of a chance to you know potentially do that without uh, me initially just poo-pooing on everything they're doing and you know some people view that as kind of naive and i have my my views on that and my, my approach does not come from being naive or not considering what could go wrong but rather assessing it all. So anyway, that's kind of just how I approach it. And my, my brand, so to speak is, you know, uh, that I talk Cardinals fans off the ledge when they're, when, when the sky is falling, I'm like, you know, let's, let's look at it, you know, the bright side or whatever. And so some of, you know, most, most of the, the interactions I get with, with, you know, folks who are subscribed to my channel and watch my videos is overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, a lot of really kind, thoughtful feedback, but once in a while I get folks who, who, you know, think I'm being a little too optimistic or a little naive. So, you know, that kind of, and that, and some of the general culture I see on Twitter, which itself is a, a terribly healthy space, right. Um, <laughs> it kind of just kind of stirred this idea to just put down on, 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 you know, in a word document, some of some thoughts I have about, you know, being an optimistic fan that how that does not necessarily have to mean that you're naive. Sometimes it's an informed choice about what you want out of your fandom. Um, and also some of the pro problematic aspects I think of, of some of the, the negative approaches not, and, and, you know, not saying that you can't be critical. I think there's a importance in, to having kind of uh, some measure of critical thought, um, but more like cynical, you know, kind of approaches and, and, and the, the, there's sort of this approach, you know, in my view where sometimes people think that if you're, if you're a cynical jerk, you're somehow smarter and, you know, I'm a fairly smart guy and I'm still pretty optimistic. So I don't think that, that, that computes, but anyway, so I, I kind of got some thoughts out about that and, and, uh, emailed it to Walter. It's like, Hey, Walter, this is kind of just something that was stirred within me, you know, would you think it's something you might want to be willing to, uh, you know, put up on revenge of the birds? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And we talked about it and he gave me kind of a little bit of feedback and I made, you know, one kind of addition based on a really great suggestion he had and put it up there. And it seems like it's got a lot of response. I, I mean, it looks like the comments, if the, I don't see what the, you know, I don't, I, I don't have access to see how many people read it, but based on the comments, it seems like there's a high level of engagement and it's been an interesting conversation. Yeah. Well, I'll defer to you on that. <laughs> yeah. The response on uh, revenge of the birds has been fantastic and it elicited a, a you know, a robust conversation 
I think as Cardinal fans, we all um, struggle with uh, the temptation to become cynical um, just as a defense mechanism for, you know, being steely hard the next time we watch the Cardinals implode. And, um, you know, as we've, we have uh, the last few playoffs we've been to um, in embarrassing fashion and um, talk about the sky falling. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to leave it all out on the field and, and be proud of your team for fighting to the bitter end. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, our last two playoffs has, have ended in just, you know, um, with the Cardinals getting totally trounced and embarrassed. And, you know, when that happens, fans are apt to become cynical because, you know, you know, they get their hopes up. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why um, national pundits and prognosticators typically every year are very leery about ranking the Cardinals higher than, than uh, others would because, they too, I think there are fans out there and pundits who get really excited about the Cardinals when they start doing well. And I think they'd like to see them doing well and they become a little bit invested and then they even start picking them in games and then only to find ba-boom, um, the bottom falls out and you're left with, well, here are the Cardinals again and so I get it from a psychological standpoint. I mean, I I learned a lot about cynicism when I was coaching a high school team that hadn't won a game in like four years. And it was my first year coaching and uh, as head coach in this program. And, um, you know, first couple of away games, the bus was like romper room. I mean, the kids were throwing Fig Newtons all around and, doing uh, rat tails with towels and, you know, it was like they were just, they were going to Chuck E. Cheese um, instead of a football game. And of course, anyone who's played football and, and have, have, you know, been on the bus knows that typically bus rides to games are very quiet and pensive. And you're thinking about, you know, um, your job and your role on the team and, not like all like this. And one of my assistant coaches said to me, you know, um, Walter, you know, actually he called me Mitch. Mitch, get up and chew their asses out, man. I said, you know, I, I want to do that, but I don't really know these kids very well yet. And I'm, I'm worried that, you know, they'll quit. <laughs> And we had a hard time recruiting to get guys on the team because who wants to sign up to a team that hasn't won a game in four years and the league is threatening to throw them out if we can't get competitive. And so it was a tenuous situation. I just let it slide, let it slide. And what, it, what occurred to me, and in both games we were down like 28 nothing at halftime, um, the first two games. And, and I uh, – I hadn't ripped into him yet, but at the halftime of the second game, I just said, look, guys, uh, you're playing like you were riding the bus. Uh, you're not really, you know, you're just kind of throwing everything, you know, 
hope it sticks on the wall and you're not really committed um, to what's going on there out on the field and you're not mentally ready to play the game. And, you know, I've been meaning to talk to you about that, but I'll tell you what, why don't we play this second half as a brand new game? And I remember I cut was get, you know, given total shit by the athletic director after the game saying I was playing mind games with the kids. Like it can't be a totally different game. I said, well, why not? And, um, turns out, uh, on the last play of the game, my, my five foot three inch, um, warrior of a running back dives into the end zone and we end up winning the second half 13 to 12 um and lost the game like 41 to 13 but but my kids were were happy and celebrating and um and we got back on the bus and the irony was on the bus ride home you could hear a pin drop and i knew right then something good was happening and what what the problem was is that, you know, if you don't believe, you know, if you're cynical and you just say, what's the use, nothing good's going to happen, then you could expect, you know, what I saw from the team in the first half of those games. And and then, um, but the minute the, the, the players started taking ownership and started believing and putting their hearts into it, and um, a week later we played the league, defending champions right down to the wire had the lead with one minute left and lost and in the locker room practically every kid was crying after the game and I knew right then um they were their heads were in the right place I mean you have to have the courage to put your heart out there right and I I applaud Joe Camo for having that courage and and the guts to stand up and say look you know there are positives here we can cling on there are things to build off of, and we don't have to be cynical. And I choose, you know, this is a willful choice. I choose to invest myself in and in, in feeling optimistic about the team's chances. And I'll take that risk, and I'll deal with the heart heartache that comes with it if, if I have to. But it's better than the alternative. Which is caring too much there. Which is the alternative, <laughs> caring too much about it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and Walter hits on some important points, and thank you for the kind of words, Walter. Um, the you know, the there's a natural human reaction, there's an emotional reaction because you know, being a fan is to be emotionally invested in, as as a comedian once said, laundry, right? Um, but but it's you know, it's it's laundry that represents you know a sense of identity in a place. You know, for me, I was born in Arizona, but my career has taken me to Georgia, so rooting for you know, the Cardinals and also the Phoenix Suns for me is this way to stay connected to a place that, you know, is I think of as home deep down. Um, and when there's disappointment, there is a natural emotional reaction, right? It, to be, uh, to, to be frustrated, to be angry, you know, it's as a Suns fan as well, you know, recently with the, the exit against the Mavs um, in, an embarrassing fashion that was an overwhelming emotional experience for many fans. And I think, you know, as, as Walter noted, there's this defense mechanism, a psychological emotional defense mechanism that to me comes down to coping with emotional strain, you know, and um, we all deal with it differently. Um, and, you know, I have to kind of keep in mind that, 
you know, fans uh, who are expressing very negative attitudes and opinions and responses to situations are dealing with that strain that I also feel. Um, you know, I, maybe there's some degree, I, I want to be delicate about this because I don't want to come across as condescending, but like there's also a maturity in how you deal with that sometimes. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean you can't be negative or frustrated because there's a mature way to, to create spaces to vent that. So, you know, and my, my contention in, in the essay that I wrote for the article was, was not that the negative or critical opinions of a team are themselves the problem. It's more the folks who think that if you don't take that approach, but instead have the audacity to be optimistic, you are then naive. And that's, that to me is the biggest contention. I, you know, again, doing my YouTube channel and having the wonderful opportunity to interact with, with Cardinals fans uh, and, and kind of be part of a community there. I, I recognize that when things go bad, fans want to vent and you have to allow that to happen some. And, um, but it's, it's the folks who then look at me when I am choosing to process that emotion in a more measured way uh, and, th and still choose to be optimistic about the future who think, well, you're just naive. You don't understand. You don't, you're just out of touch with reality. And that is, is the condescending part that I contention with, but I want to speak just absolutely empirically and practically about optimism about the future because you know what if you look at okay what what do we expect just you know case in point out of the Arizona Cardinals in 2022 season you know and that that's kind of you know the the space I'm in and Walter's in right now none of us know what's going to happen in 2022 we are all projecting based on past performance off-season moves and projections, you know, and in our heads, we are all doing some sort of calculus about probabilities based on what we saw, the trajectory of the team, uh, the way the end of the season went with, with the collapse, with the, the continuities and discontinuities on the roster, who they've kept and who they moved on from, who they've added. Um, we try to project what 2022 will look like. And there are a range of outcomes. And I, I, I mentioned this in the article that when I look at the range of outcomes for the Cardinals, I see a basement of a team that sustains injuries, falls apart and wins as few as six or seven games. Now that might mean like, you know, season long injuries for key players, but I also see a ceiling of a team that is that team that started out seven and zero and 10 and two, I think it was or eight and two in the first 10 games. And, and was was at points arguably the best team in the NFL, but then got it had some injury problems. I see a version of that team that doesn't have as bad of luck with injury. Some of the depth signings they've made help sustain that, and a team that ends up being a championship contender. That's the ceiling. So that's a big range, right? And none of us know where the Cardinals are going to fall in that range. We just don't know. So we are all projecting. And we, we can kind of choose, do I think, am I going to lean towards, you know, kind of more of an optimistic projection or more pessimistic? And I lean towards optimistic, but always acknowledge the range. And that is not, to me, a naive thing. None of us know what's going to happen, right? So we're, we're all speculating. If I choose to speculate in a little more optimistic side of the range, 
I'm still speculating no more or less than the person who says that they're going to, you know, finish fourth in division. Um, so it's almost like though there's this, this kind of hubris from folks who say, well, you are clearly wrong if you're projecting an optimistic spot within that range. Um, but like, how do they know, <laughs> you know, they, they, they don't see the future any better than I do. Um, and I think, you know, that that's kind of practically it's, it's there. I think it's problematic to challenge anyone and say that they don't know how it's going to go down. Yeah. And one of the things that I find interesting about the, that is, is probabilities and playing the game like that. Cause that's something I've learned to do better over time is realizing that you don't know things and so playing it as a probability game makes it so much easier to kind of calculate how outcomes are going to go down or what's going to be the most likely scenario or something like that because the, the thing I point to in sports with that is like I was saying that the Cincinnati Bengals were not a playoff team last year because the numbers suggested that had the Baltimore Ravens stayed healthy, the Bengals would not have made the playoffs. And then all of a sudden that ends up becoming wrong. And then all of a sudden you look like it's an incorrect thing. And that's where the probabilities stand at certain points. They change kind of quickly in in a lot of cases. And that's how I've learned like to do football analysis, just because that's how, well, I guess sports analysis as a whole, I've learned to engage things as probabilities because then you have some sort of, and all of it is subjective still, it just makes it more so than saying this is the thing that will definitively happen, which we all like to think is the case. We all like to think we know exactly how things are going to happen. And it usually rarely it's going to go. Even if you get the same result you were thinking, it rarely ever goes the way that you go. And in terms of optimism and naivete, the thing that I point to on, on optimism and cynicism is I kind of give and take when people need certain things. So like Mm -hmm. if people are being too cynical, it's good to hit optimism. And if they're being maybe too optimistic and not accounting for possible, you know, like negative adverse effects, especially in real life consequences where you're not thinking about how, you know, this might impact someone else negatively, it's important to bring in a healthy dose of cynicism. So that's how I bridge the gap in that way. I like to think of myself as optimistic and other people would think I'm too pessimistic. So no, that's a great it, point, Kyle, because I mean, as much as I'm talking about optimism, there will be points when I'm maybe doing a live stream and someone will, will pose a question or a thought that is very optimistic, like, you know, about something going, you know, that they're projecting, and I will sometimes kind of pump the brakes a little bit, not, not, sh- you know, necessarily say that they're completely wrong, but say, well, you know, that, that, that would be great if that happens, you know, we have to keep in mind dot, dot, dot. Right. So there is this kind of, re- kind of trying to come back towards the middle, right. Regression towards the mean, so to speak, <laughs> that I think makes sense. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, and probability, like, you know, and we've talked about this before, you know, what I do for a living, I'm a sociology professor. So I've dealt with literally dealt with quantitative. I, you know, I've published research that actually does regression models that look at probabilities and things like this. And, you know, even the best multivariate regression (laughs) models and statistics are, are not predicting the future. They are just telling you based on a set of data what are the statistical probabilities in terms of outcomes? No guarantees that, that that's how it's going to play out. 
those are not actual, you know, <laughs> uh, crystal ball projection or predictions. They're just telling us based on a mathematical formula and certain variables, what's the most likely statistical outcome? Um, how will the, if the patterns continue the way they have in the past, what's the likely future? And when you've watched the NFL long enough, you know that, okay, there's some patterns you can look at where teams trend and good teams with, you know, personnel continuities tend to continue to be good and bad teams with personnel continuity, continuity struggle to be good. But you also see if you've watched the NFL long enough that there are a lot of variables that change players take leaps in their development. You know, players who are in their second or third year, sometimes finally hit it right players come out of nowhere you know uh, kurt warner uh you know uh you know all kinds of play- and not even just not just the 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 storybook tales like kurt warner but um there, there's arian fosters of the world that just kind of these these players that weren't on the radar who step up so there's so many unpredictable kinds of variables that you just have to recognize if you've been watching nfl long enough or any sport long enough you know, narrative shift teams take, you know, turn corners, players come on, on the scene and other players that you thought would be really good, you know, crash. So it's just, you, you, yeah, probabilities are a way to a starting point, but there's just such a range of outcomes based on unpredictable variables that anyone who thinks that they know how it's going to go down is, is fooling themselves. Walter, I wanted to ask you about the idea of optimism and pessimism because you put out that poll on how to to be an optimistic fan or a a fan who's cynical about that. Because another thing that's interesting is people also emotionally hedge. Like I I think Joe mentioned it earlier, is that people hedge on if this thing disappoints me, I'm not I'm not feeling terrible about myself for for being optimistic or feeling like a fool when in reality that that defeats the whole purpose of engaging in it because you're already setting yourself low and you know we'll probably talk about championship culture at some point along with that but explain kind of the idea of the poll that you put up on on twitter well after having a great conversation with joe and getting and prepping for um writing this article to feature joe's um essay about um why being optimistic is not being naive. Um, I, uh, I always like to gauge what Cardinal fans are thinking, and it's a small sample size on Twitter, but uh, I think 175 Cardinal fans voted to the simple question, um, are you optimistic about the team's chances for success this year? And the two choices were, a, yes, B, no. <laughs> and um, I was tempted to do qualifying, and then I said, no, let's just let's just find out who's willing to commit to yes, who's willing to commit to no. And as it turns out, when you rounded the figures up after 175 votes, 54% said yes, and, thir- and 46% said no, which I thought was pretty good. You know, I mean, I... And it's always, you know, like like Joe said, you know, the the majority of of interactions we have 
with Cardinal fans are overwhelmingly positive. And the feedback and the discussions, even when we agree to disagree, are respectful. And, but then there's always, um, you know, a, a, a critic, a snark, a cynic, someone who jumps in to tell you what an idiot you are. And uh, in fact, even recently, I had one poster on Twitter call me an evil wizard who tries to lure young children into his bedroom for um, for asking questions about Cardinal Star players. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, okay. Now, Joe and I had a conversation about this. I mean, do you take the bait and fire back? I don't anymore. Um, you know, it, the only time I would respond to something like that is if it was somebody that I already had a already know and have interactions with and i'd probably do it via private message not not out in the public but um but what what's interesting to me is <laughs> here's the typical cycle of a fan who and i i you know who sets him or herself up for inevitable heartbreak or disillusionment or whatever it's, it's as classic as this. Now, this is the time of year that drives me crazy because I refuse to predict any games. Um, because, I mean, to me, I made the analogy the other day on Revenge of the Birds. It would be like predicting the Dow Jones today, whether it would go up or down. I mean, on a given day, like they say, on any given Sunday, plus there's so many intangibles and variables going game to game who's in the lineups like joe said who suddenly is stepping up their games you know guys you wouldn't normally depend on are suddenly playing well well and and as we've seen as cardinal fans you could still lose to a third string quarterback in a team that's won four games and has nothing to play for you know on your own home turf when you have to win one game to make the playoffs I mean, so, you know, the thinking down the road, oh, here are the cupcake games, um, is pure folly to me. But here's the cycle that I find amusing. Oh, and, and I think correctable if, if fans would just take a different approach. I see, like, a, a typical fan will get on Twitter around Thursday and, and post, the Cardinals are going to win 38 to 20. Um, and I, I cringe inside because I already think, oh my God. And, and I saw this two years ago prior to, um, the Cardinals playing in Foxborough against the Patriots and, you know, knowing the Patriots as well as I do and knowing Bill Belichick as well as I do, Bill Belichick was not going to lose to the Cardinals by 38 to 20. It just never, ever was going to happen like that. So I already knew right away. I mean, that's just pure folly to think that way all right so in my opinion but you know but here here's why fans set themselves up because they become all the more indignant if not only um do the cardinals not win big but they wind up losing and now they're extra pissed you know like how could the cardinals do this to me you know i had such faith in them and this faith that they were going to kick Bill Belichick's ass 
you know, and, and um, instead, you know, all this, you know, Kyle and I have talked about the end of that game ad nauseum. I mean, we can't get it out of our heads with the, yeah, so, with the so for Kingsbury people who, timeout and, yeah. you know, and, Oh people my who God. may not remember in that way. So it was a third and fifth for the Patriots. It was either a tie game or the Cardinals were up. I, I think it was a tie game it was at that a tie point. Game. Yep. It was a tie game. It was third and 15 with like 50 seconds to go. And uh, Kingsbury called timeout. Like the idea of if they don't pick this up, we can get the ball back. And this, the ball was around midfield and, they they he called timeout with the idea of we can get the ball back. And on the next play, Cam Newton rolls to the left. There's not a single Cardinal defender on the left side of the field. He picks up like 18 yards, and I, I think it was Zayvon Collins had a late hit out of bounds, or maybe it was Isaiah, Isaiah Simmons. Simmons. Yeah, yeah, I, Collins wouldn't have been on the team at that point. So right. Isaiah Simmons has a late hit out of bounds. 15 more yards. It ends up being a 33-yard play, and then Patriots kick the game-winning field goal at the end. Yeah, like and, a 52-yarder from Nick Folk. And it, there's the famous photo of Kyler Murray like sitting on the bench um, that I clipped because every number one pick has a famous clip of them just being absolutely dumbfounded after a result on the bench. Right. And uh, right. yeah, it, it was it was just the the most ridiculous I've ever seen. <laughs> Right. Yep. And, uh, you know, and then so the follow up after that was I was listening to Cardinal fans keep saying how they should have won the game by 20 plus points, which I'm like, are you watching the same game? And, and, and this total underestimation of the opponents, um, almost to the point of disrespect. I mean, I don't care what team you have when you go into Foxborough and play a Bill Belichick defense, that in itself is going to be difficult the way he has handled quarterbacks over the years and gotten in their heads is epic, you know, but and you have to take that into, into consideration, but here's the irony too. Is some of these same fans afterwards will not only say they should have won by 20 some odd points, uh, thus fulfilling their, you know, prediction of the game. But then moments later, they'll say, well, the Cardinals have a roster, you know, that, um, you know, like 85% of the players on the Cardinals roster have no business being in the NFL. And I'm going, what? <laughs> so you're saying they should beat the Patriots by 20-some-odd points. You're pissed off that they didn't. And now you're saying that most of the roster has players who don't belong in the NFL? Where? What? I mean, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of fans have this really um, flawed understanding of how close the competition level is the NFL. Uh, I mean, there are some truly bad right. rosters and teams sometimes, you know, right. like the Houston Texans and, you know, <laughs> had a really bad roster last year, but they did not go. Oh, and 17. And, you know, the, the, with, with the exception of maybe the best and worst team or two, 
the, the margin of difference between teams is not that wide in terms of the talent right. and, and even uh, players, you know, there are superstar players, no doubt. And there are players who are, you know, replacement level as they call them. But, you know, most players are kind of in the, the, the it's, it's a much, you know, it's a razor thin, you know, uh, margin, um, you know, and, you know, you talk about, you know, you know, how fans react to that. And, you know, I, I am not unaffected by things, you know, my, I have a way of dealing with the disappointment. And usually for me, it's rather than venting, it's like kind of disengaged. Like I, I just like, for example, with the sun's lost, I just kind of, I didn't tweet about the sun's. I stopped watching the NBA, you know, playoffs, and, and I, I just, I just kind of give myself a break from it for a couple of weeks, you know. Um, when when the Cardinals lost in the playoffs, I took at least a couple of days off. You know, I did, I did some a live stream during the game, but I kind of didn't really do a lot of content for a week or two. You know, just give myself a break. So you know, you can't be unaffected. But um, I want to. Um, kind of take a point that Walter made and I want to uh, respectfully take a different approach, but use it as a segue to talk about um, kind of an important point that I think w- that, that we talked, that I talked about in the article and that I think is relevant to this. So, you know, Walter mentioned that he's not a fan of doing projections of, you know, wins and losses as far in advance because, you know, it's because of how difficult it is to get that right. And I don't disagree with that point. Um, but I don't mind doing that, and it's not. But it's because I, I I look at it through a different lens, and it's not about like how how efficacious are those predictions because they're going to be very difficult and off, and we don't know who's a good team or bad team. But the lens I look at that through is that um, that the purpose of sports is entertainment. Um, and for me and for many people at this point in time to look ahead at that schedule and try to project those wins and losses as futile of an effort as it may be is fun. Um, (laughs) it's fun to do that. Um, so for me, that, that's why I don't mind that. And I, I recognize how off those predictions will be. Um, last year I did a, I did a predictions video, 50 predictions for the season and intentionally knew that did this knowing that a lot of them would be off. Right. I knew a lot of them would be wrong, but, and that it would, they, some of them would age poorly, but I was fine with that because it was fun, (laughs) you know, Um, you know, and some of my predictions were really good and some of them were really bad. Um, So the, the, and the, 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 you know, so the segue to the, the, you know, here is obviously like, what is, you know, being a fan about, and this is something that I've really kind of thought about a lot over this last year, more than any other year. Cause you see here, so many fans who, who take this kind of, the only thing that matters is winning approach. And, you know, one of the things I hit on in, in the essay is if you work for the organization, if you're the GM, uh, if you're the owner of the team, if you're a player, a coach, you know, the, you absolutely are, you know, there to win. And that makes sense, right? And that no nonsense, the only thing that matters is winning. We got to put in the work, do what we takes, no excuses. Um, <laughs> if you're part of the team, that makes sense. And there's this discourse around that. And, you know, when you look at the way coaches and, and players and GMs respond to media questions, you know, like, well, you know, we need to do better. We need to get back. We need to work harder. 
but you won by 20. I know, but we need to do better. You know, it's, it's, it's that no nonsense and that's to be expected. And, you know, and that makes sense, but I think fans have heard that discourse so long and so much and are feel so invested that many fans start to feel like that's how you're supposed to approach it as a fan. Right. And, and I'm like, I'm not part of the team. I love the team. I feel connected to it. I'm invested in its success emotionally, but as a fan, I don't think it makes sense for me to have that. The only thing that matters is winning approach because like there's so many other experiences over the course of a season that I, that I just, my life is enriched by, um, you know, I, I've had wonderful conversations with you two gentlemen over podcasts over the last year. You know, I've, I've interacted with other Cardinals fans. I took my son to a game in Jacksonville. I I've, you know, made friends over football. I, I have fun doing fantasy football. There's so many great experiences that I look at. And if you take the approach of the only thing that matters is winning. And if you don't win a championship, your season is lost. That that's like erasing all those experiences. <laughs> and so, so being a fan is not a, a competitive career. You know, I say that in, in my essay, it's an avocation. It's, it's something we do, you know, it's, it's something we do to inject moments of entertainment and fun and enrichment and feeling alive, you know, into our, our, the, the mundane existence we sometimes, you know, find ourselves falling into. So, so I feel like fans have, many fans have uh, wrongly embraced or have embraced the wrong discourse. They've taken that, that organizational discourse of the only thing that matters is winning that players and coaches, you know, articulate, and they've projected that onto fandom. And to me, what matters is the experiences. If, if, if being a fan is, is not bringing some sort of fulfillment or joy or enjoyment or value to my life, then there's a lot of other things I can and should be doing with my time. <laughs> so that's kind of the lens through which I view it. And that ties back kind of the optimistic thing for me, looking at the future with some optimism is, is I, I describe it as kind of a, an informed decision and an intentional decision that I could look at it and say, these, oh, the Cardinals going to suck this year. They haven't done anything, blah, blah, blah. Or I could look at that range of probabilities or possibilities and say they could be good. And I'm going to look at, you know, that possibility and I'm going to kind of choose a little bit more of an optimistic projection, um, acknowledging the potential downfalls. And I'm going to have an optimistic and, and give people the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to do that because that's how I enjoy the sport better. So for me, I think that's the thing. The most important thing is that fans should remember that being a sports fan is about, you know, having injecting your life with, you know, these moments and these experiences that are, that are beneficial and positive and whatever that looks like for you lean into that. Um, but don't criticize other people for doing it differently. Yeah. I, I, I respect that. And I uh, also respect your having fun with making predictions the only thing that concerns me about when people do that is that I think they create oftentimes false expectations one way or the other. Um, and I loved the difference the Cardinals 
had in their approach this last season, initiated by Buda Baker and J.J. Watt, was let's go 1-0 and this week and let's not think about anything else. Let's wipe the slate clean after every game and do everything we can to try to go 1-0 and this week. And I think that really, for quite some time, helped the team. And it was pretty remarkable how um, early in the season – the Cardinals won virtually every game they were not favored in. Yeah. Um, and then when they suddenly became favorites, they lost almost every game where they were favored in. I mean, their five of the last six games, they were favored um, in five of them and lost every, every one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, like, whoa, um, how does that happen, you know? So the only thing that worries me is the concept or the idea of the expectations that come with the anticipation that, you know, the Cardinals are going to win, you know, from week to week. Uh, And it it just, I'm, I guess I'm more superstitious than, than uh, some people. So, but I wouldn't want to take away just out of respect for you, Joe, and for anyone who likes to do that, it's fine with me. I don't choose to um, look at it right. because it doesn't. It makes me nervous. Well, um, that, that's part of how create... that's part of how you enjoy your fandom, and I also yeah. respect that, right? Yeah, and and you know, I have had to recalibrate the way that I look at watch games. I mean. I have to constantly remind myself I should watch these games to try to enjoy them, not be this bundle of nerves ready to explode every time something goes wrong. Well, let me ask you this, Walter, as a football coach for, you know, decades upon end, were you that person when you were coaching or were you able to kind of detach yourself a little bit to do on the sidelines? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think early on I flew off the handle more, and then you learn, you sort of temper. You you realize that you know that um, you know being a little calmer under pressure um, is better for your players than if you have this coach who's a raving lunatic on the sidelines. Um, you know. Uh, you know, that was more prevalent for me in basketball when I was coaching. I was at times early in my career a raving lunatic on the sidelines and getting teed up by – I once got thrown out of a game 10 seconds into it. <laughs> um, and I didn't deserve it, but um, – Of course you didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, it was just bizarre. Yeah. Um, I argued a call, and the guy said, you say one more word, you're gone, and – I said, what? You're gone. <laughs> I mean, it was that stuff. But I think I had created a you know, perception that I was this malcontent towards officials. And I had to really change a lot of my MO when it came to that. But but for watching games now, what I try to do is, you know, I want to enjoy these. Like like Joe's saying, I mean, I, I want to be optimistic.
Hello? Hello. I Are you guys still have... there? I am. I think we might have lost you just a little bit. Yeah. Is is Kyle there? I'm here. Oh, good. I think, yeah. Maybe okay. just had a little internet safu. I'm, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, let me just finish good. that thought. Is that uh, when I'm watching the games, one of the ways I can remind myself is that growing up a Cardinals fan and not living in Arizona, you know, when I was a kid, I, I had to sit through other games and just watch the ticker of games to know how the Cardinals were doing. I, there was no internet. I couldn't get online. There were so many times I couldn't watch a game. And all I could do was wait till the ESPN highlights, you know, and Chris Berman afterwards to watch the highlights or occasional when they chime in on the game that I was watching and go, here's what happened in St. Louis. Uh, Mel Gray caught a touch, and I'd be all excited, you know, and then watching the ticker. And, you know, I had to pinch myself and tell myself how lucky I am just to be able to watch every game now as a Cardinal fan, you know, and not have to. And I used to then have to go to bars to watch Sunday Ticket. You know, I remember one game. Um, it was a, it was a, a classic overtime game where the Cardinals. Neil O'Donnell missed two chip shot field goals. One hit the upright to win the game um, in this big, big game where they're finally competitive. And the other team comes down and kicks the game winner. And I remember going out to my car and sitting in my car and crying, literally crying, saying like, why can't the Cardinals ever win? You know, I mean, um, and of course being – and having to go to sports bars and, you know, back then you know, I couldn't get Sunday ticket. Nobody could, but you could go to a bar to watch games and you had to watch them in a remote corner on a little TV without any audio. Um, you know, so you couldn't hear the game, but you could watch. At least it was better than nothing. So I have to remind myself of how fortunate I am just to watch the games and so I, from that standpoint, I have to try to, um, you know, t be appreciative of just the opportunity to see my Cardinals play and then try to keep a hold of my emotions. But there are times you know, when, like yeah. that Rams game at the end, I mean, mm. I was absolutely BS the whole game. And, and um, you know, it, it just makes you wonder if you can't enjoy it. I mean, right. Well, I'd like to kind of though bring a little nuance to that 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 topic because enjoying the game, it, I don't necessarily feel like that you that it, being optimistic has to mean as, as a fan has to mean that you always have a positive view of what's going on. You know, when I when I talk about you know the fan experience and how the most important thing to me is how I enjoy and experience being a fan. There's there's a little bit of a holistic view in that because it's not about always being happy and full of joy as much as it is about feeling alive, feeling something. Yeah. And sometimes that thing you feel is disappointment, but the fact that you care are and enough yes. that you are so affected by something is part of that feeling alive and vital. Yes. And then there is also this whole part of human psychology that you know our brains are sort of these differential 
machines that observe peaks and valleys and you know the championship and the wins are that much sweeter with because of the struggles and if you are one of those people who are so fortunate to have been a fan of a team that has consistently won right uh, sometimes you actually lose perspective and and maybe i i think could probably argue that you don't enjoy it as much um so you know it's not well, to be an optimist doesn't mean when they when the you know cars get blown out by the Rams in, in the wild card playoff game that you're like oh this is fine you know right. you're, yeah. you're gonna be impacted and yes. that's that's fine right um, but to me what being optimist means is one not taking that and saying oh this whole season is a waste exactly. of my time yep. it wasn't a waste of my time i had meaningful experiences with wonderful other human beings over right. cardinals football this last season right. and it also being an optimist doesn't mean uh you looking at the future and saying well we'll never be successful right. i right. mean you know um you look at there's so many teams and so many star players that never won a championship until they did, you know, I'm old mm -hmm. enough and you know, to remember John Elway having a reputation as a guy who couldn't win the big game. Right. Until he did, <laughs> you know, twice. So, right. Yeah. Right. And then, so, yeah, all of a sudden Matthew Stafford's in every commercial on my television <laughs> right. during the NFL, NBA playoffs. But <laughs> right. Stafford was a loser 12 months ago. <laughs> he couldn't win it until he did. Right. By the way, just as a quick side note there, I can't believe Matthew Stafford stole all of Joe Burrow's commercials this offseason. <laughs> right. we, we, were, we were being told this was going to be the offseason of Joe Burrow getting all the commercials, and Matthew <laughs> Stafford stole it from him. <laughs> just like he stole the game. Right. Exactly. But Matthew Stafford's not as excellent of a – anyways, I find that hilarious. But anyway, Burrow's time is coming, right? He's – he's Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, and then that, that what is it, AT&T commercial where he's like, you mean I can trade in this cell phone <laughs> I've had for 12 years and, and um, you know, that I was perfectly happy with, but, you know, it wasn't the best of the line and wasn't this and that, so I can get a brand new one that, that fits fits all my purposes and i can be most successful with <laughs> and, and wink, but wink. never forget the old phone ever but never forget <laughs> no, there's a little there's a little fan service to the lions in that. i mean the, i love that lions fans are so self-aware as much as we're talking about this and i have a point that kind of i guess pushes back on both of you guys but it kind of like builds off of it um, I love that Lions fans like embrace the Rams because they're like, we're never going to see a Super Bowl. This is the closest <laughs> thing we're going to get. <laughs> Living vicariously that, through Matthew Stafford and the Rams. Yeah, yeah, they were printing Detroit Rams t-shirts all throughout Detroit <laughs> during like, the week of the Super Bowl. It was cool. Yeah, they, they embraced it. Like, we are, we've had one playoff win in 60 years. If you're not self-aware at this point, it's never going to happen to you. So the Lions, right. the Lions were incredibly self-aware around that. And the, the part that I'd bring up here also is as much as sports fans do really ride or die with the team, to me, as someone who was born in a year that starts with a two, it feels like an old <laughs> sort of mentality because I, I've heard stories and I've read books and things like that before of like, you know, Joe Gibbs used to have um, pictures of his family at the dinner or pictures of him at the dinner table because he'd be in the office for 18 hours. And 
Bill Belichick would sleep in his office for a week at a time. And like that used to be football culture is like football culture was if you're not working harder than the other person, you are a failure, especially in coaching and, and sometimes with players too. And the culture changed over time. And I think like fan culture has changed also. Cause as you were talking about a uh, Walter, like not being able to watch football games as a child and, into your twenties and having to seek out highlights to see the Cardinals. Cause you lived in, in the new England area. Right. Like people, my age, apart from the people who like, they really got their fandoms passed down from their parents. Like they, they'll root for the chargers no matter what. And they, right. they, they were brutally disappointed when they lost that game to the chiefs. I'm like, it's the Kansas city chiefs. You guys had no business being that close to them in the first place. But either way, like apart from those people, like most people I know don't have that same level of fandom because you've grown up in a world where football has been a corporation and football has been a massive sport uh, and really the massive sport for their entire lives. And so I, I think that combined with just the plethora of entertainment options that exist now right. is that, and like really high quality entertainment options outside of even football, which is, you know, sports are still the most popular entertainment vehicle in America, but it's, it's not as large as it once was. And, and it's football. And then every other sport, you kind of pick and choose a little bit. Like, right. I, I think that in that way, people don't have to be sports fans in the same way. And, people are more self-aware than they used to be just because they're, if there's so many other options. And so you don't have to take sports incredibly seriously as an entertainment option. Some people find that in other places. Like I've, I've seen how toxic like star Wars culture can be sometimes, <laughs> but right. like I'll, I'll, I think the the plethora of entertainment and like high quality entertainment options of the 21st century have changed the way that I mean, the culture is constantly changing, but it's changed it in the better of correcting that problem for young people. I don't think young people have the same level of crazed emotional investment that you, you might see. Some people obviously do. I think it just manifests in different ways than perhaps the fan who rides or dies with every result and embraces the mantra of the team and what the, you know, what the team says and, you know, the coach's words speak to them. And so they embrace the coach's mentality as if they're part of the team. I feel like that that's fading out of the culture, but it's not entirely disappeared yet at this point. Right. I think you make a good point there. I mean, there's, there are more options and I think there's still going to be, you know, people who are truly diehard and not, you know, younger generations who grow up, and sports has been a major part of their life, especially, you know, their parents take them to games and, and there's this really kind of connected uh, tissue there, so to speak. Um, but, you yeah, know, I think I think there probably is a shift in the way fandom operates because of, of these cultural changes. I'd like to use kind of your point as a jumping off uh, or as a segue to something I talked about in the essay as far as fair quote unquote fair weather fans and fans keeping the the team accountable because i think uh, uh, one of the things that i often see from people who who are attempting to defend you know when when they, they when they tell you that hey if you you're being optimistic you're you're just enabling the team you're making it easy for the team because you are no matter how bad the product is they put on the field and how little effort they put in 
you know, their, their words, not mine. Uh, you're still going to be an optimistic fan. So because you do that, you're letting, you're not keeping the team accountable and they'll keep, you know, doing the minimum because that's what you let them do. And, you know, that's kind of that sort of mentality is that, no, I'm keeping the team accountable by being negative. Um, that I think is also problematic because it's, it's not rooted in reality and an understanding of, of, of how these organizations work. My voice as Joe Camo does not matter in terms of keeping the team accountable in, in a meaningful way. The, the ownership, what keeps them accountable is profitability and any ego they have tied up in being a winner. Um, and winning games makes more money than losing games. So any, anyone who says an owner isn't trying to win, maybe in the short term, they, their team isn't capable of winning and they're trying to, they're, they're trying to put little in to rebuild, but that's still a, a strategy aimed at long-term winning. You want to get that earlier pick to draft Joe Burrow. Um, coaches are trying to win because they want to keep their job and they want to be successful and they're competitive players. Same thing. And like, my me being critical doesn't give them more motivation than they already have built in. But the one thing, like if you want to say that there is a fan group that keeps owners accountable and teams accountable, it's actually counterintuitively the fair weather fans, quote unquote. I, I don't even like the term, but the, the fans who are not as hardcore committed, the fans who um, will stop watching if the team isn't winning. Because that fan, that that population as a group, right? The owners know they are there, and they know if this team isn't winning, those folks are going to stop coming to games, stop buying jerseys, stop buying memorabilia. Um, they're going to stop watching on TV, and our ad revenues uh, locally will be down. It's counterintuitively the fair weather fans that keep teams accountable because that population will stop watching if the team isn't good and money will be down. Not, it's not the people who care <laughs> immensely like I do who keep the team accountable. Um, that's the reality that I think a lot of people don't realize. So my being a, a steadfastly optimistic, no matter what is not enabling a team because there's a certain percent of the fan base that's going to be like me, no matter what, but a large percent that absolutely uh, their their engagement will be a function of whether the team is winning or losing. Well, I want to jump in on that because I, I would offer a respectful um, rebuttal to that because um, my whole raison d'etre as a fan is to try to um, let my voice be heard because – you know, as, uh, like I'll give a perfect example is that if the coaches can't see something, I'd love it if we could try to point it out to them. And as Cardinal fans, it's so frustrating. I mean, I just know this as a fact, as, as a, a physical fact, that Jordan Hicks can't cover running backs one-on-one. -on -one. Just can't. And so – it either forces you to play zones, which the Cardinals don't play well, or you're going to just concede that Cam Akers is going to catch a 25-yarder up the sideline. And so when I see mistakes like this or, you know, uh, miscalculations of, of players' abilities and schemes that aren't fundamentally sound, like, 
you know, we've watched ad nauseum Chandler Jones being dropped off into pass coverage. And just lo and behold, he leaves the building saying, like, he wants to go play for a defensive coordinator who will maximize his talents. And I had to, I, you know, I have to agree with Chandler there. On a third down and long, to drop him into pass coverage, it's just outrageous. It's outrageously stupid. And I, I'll call it like that because it is. And, you know, as a fan, I want to be heard. You know, if I see something that I think I'm 100% convinced could help the team, and I, that someone may call me naive to think that my voice doesn't matter that much. But, you know, I think being um, critical when criti- criticism is necessary and helping to form a mindset and an expectation and holding the organization to higher standards. Like, for an- another example is, I'm still ripped off that um, not you know, the way the ha- Cardinals handled, you know, the Josh Rosen situation. It was outrageous. I mean, and if we don't, as fans, stand up, I mean, you know, the way they had him twisted in the wind all that time, knowing pretty much they were going to draft Kyler Murray anyway, the way, way they had him waiting all the way through the draft, then putting him up for trade in the draft, and then you finally trade him, and the GM doesn't even call him. I mean, that's just so outrageous. I mean, I, I just, you know, if if I can't be a voice and a fan to try to enact change, and this is where the rhetorician in me maybe is, you know, is, is comes to the fore because for years I taught rhetoric at, in AP language um, to students, and you know, I think rhetoric can change the world. I mean, it, uh, there are so many great examples of it. If if you create a greater consciousness, um. You know, uh, then chances are, sooner or later, the more people that that you know agree with this, or the more people that you can rally up a cause, um, where um, you know uh, suddenly there's a social con- consciousness that wasn't there previously. And I think the power of the written word and of voices can enact big change. I guess I'm yeah. just a little less convinced that it will enact change to the the organization like i don't think like i don't think the coaches are gonna hear or be moved by your or my opinion about jordan hicks i think i (laughs) i think that that message doesn't get to the people who make those decisions and if it does i think when you're at those places you're kind of used to like deflecting or or just kind of sweeping under the rug those voices it's when the fans stop showing up <laughs> that 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 <laughs> people take notice now i'm not saying that those those conversations are are futile because i think folks like you and i walter are, have chosen to kind of engage and be part of this cardinals fan community and you know we're very fortunate that there are people who enjoy our work so like when you're making those critiques and comments you're you know, about, okay, this is what's going on. This particular player is struggling in this area. And this is part of the reason the run defense is not good right right now. You're, you're, you're both educating and, and, and uh, articulating things that some fans are already seeing and kind of validating what they're seeing and creating a space where they, where also there can be 
you know, part of being a, a big part of being a fan is the ability to have that space to have discourse about your team. So I, you know, I, I'm not certainly wouldn't suggest that I think that what you and I do is like without any value. It's just, I'm maybe have a different take on, you know, I, I think maybe there, we, things you and I say are right, might be able to influence or, or provide food for thought for fans and how some fans think, but I just don't necessarily know that, it, that the, the organization is going to make a change in anything they do based on anything I say. Additionally, the two of you have platforms that are larger than say the common fan and yet aren't large enough to institute real change because right. neither of you have a direct line to Steve Kime or neither of you have a direct line to the linebackers coach of the, of the Arizona Cardinals. And so I think to the same point that Walter is correct, that a large coalition of people mm -hmm. bringing their voices together has the power to institute change. It's secondary to a large coalition of people deciding to revoke their dollars. I think if they, if a large coalition of people decide they're going to not spend money, then the corporation, which every individual NFL team operates as a corporation in one large corporation of the NFL like, I think if, if that's the first step people take, you're going to see change happen faster and you're going to see change be more effective and swift based on what you want. And that's, I think, part of like rooting for a business and, and just the, how large the NFL has gotten over the past 50 years in that same way that each team now operates in the sense of a corporation and teams only become available for purchase every five years or so. Um, the, the thing that was disheartening for me in that way was like, everyone talked the talk about the Washington football team during all of the scandals and the promiscuous activities of Dan Snyder. And then when they released new jerseys at the start of 2022, they were the five highest selling jerseys on NFL.com. And that was disheartening because there's no incentive to change the behavior if you aren't willing to revoke the dollar. And over time, that's changed too. Washington went from one of the most attended stadiums selling out every game to now one of the three lowest attended teams in the NFL, which we don't know how real those are now because Dan Snyder was lying about revenue sharing. But right. like it over 20 years, the fandom has disengaged and disassociated. And that's what's going to instigate change. As we hear this weekend, like NFL owners are counting votes to try and remove Dan Snyder as owner. And so that's where I think over a long period of time, vocal change wasn't going to, to make real meaningful change unless the dollars were behind it also, which is the reason why Washington changed their name in the first place. It wasn't out of the goodness of the heart of the team deciding that their team name was racist. It was FedEx and, and their major sponsors were threatening to pull their dollars unless they changed the team name. And so I think that secondary to once you once you've removed monetary, um, I think first and foremost, people should should act with their dollars. And once you've done that, I think voicing your opinions and protesting and talking about real change with groups of people is more important to, to creating change after that. Yeah. Um, that was really well said. And, uh, it's a fascinating discussion because, you know, um, I, I think there is a larger purpose for fans being involved and engaging in the daily conversations and, 
can can a fan base help mold or create a consciousness around the team that the team pays attention to? And um, I can just say from my own end how encouraging it's been at times to hear from former players or hear from parents of players or situations where they've come back to me and said, boy, you were so right about this and um, someone needed to say it. Yeah, I was really struck with uh, the best thing I've heard from a Cardinals player in, in ages was last year in the offseason, Buddha Baker saying, you know, I'll just say it like it is if some guys weren't doing their jobs. And then in that offseason came this new approach, which I think has gotten the Cardinals, um, you know, uh, building the Cardinals some momentum of, hey, we want to get, we want to improve our leadership, particularly amongst veterans, and B, we want to get more physical. And I think that's been the, the MO for the organization in the last two years, which gives me, talk about optimism, makes me a whole lot more optimistic than I was before. But, you know, there are the, one of the things every team has to deal with are the divas, are the guys that, you know, want to play on their own terms. And, you know, I mean, you look at, look at the Rams. Any divas on that team? Odell Beckham Jr. <laughs> <laughs> well, he... Yeah. Uh, Jalen Ramsey. <laughs> well... Jalen Ramsey, I Jalen Ramsey gets disrespected in that way, but yeah, because Jalen Ramsey is loud and outspoken, he gets painted as a diva. I mean, I don't mind. I don't I'm not. I, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm much more neutral about that. But he asked the question. Yeah. And I no. Yeah. Pipe in. It's no, also. And, oh yeah. Ramsey struggled in the playoffs. I mean, um, but you know, and there's a fine line between swag and being a diva too. But and I agree. I mean, I. You know, I'm not into his antics at all, but um, but did Jalen Aunt Ramsey hold out? Um, did he, you know, make the off season all about him? Did Jalen Ramsey get suspended for six games for Peds? I mean, oh, okay. you know, in the context of Hopkins, yeah, because I was going to say, I think Ramsey, I did a piece on this because the Jaguars, the Jaguars gave Ramsey away for free. It's the worst trade in modern NFL history now that it's all said and done, but. He is the guy who showed up in a Brinks truck at one point. And I'm not even saying that's diva behavior. <laughs> I, yeah. I love that stuff. And at the same time, like, I, I don't like when people view divas as like contract talks, but like Jalen Ramsey is a guy who's talked the talk and for the most and part has backed it up. Has walked he, the walk because he's yeah, been an he, all pro. Right. I was going to say he'll walk into the hall of fame if he retires tomorrow as the greatest corner I've ever seen in my lifetime. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Over I, Revis, huh? Yeah, I mean the Revis peak was really good. I Jalen Ramsey's just so good at football. He's the one corner I point to and say he could he could be one of those game changing type of players at the corner position. I don't think it's quite there just because the position he plays is is basically trying to be phased out by modern rules of the NFL and making it more difficult to cover, but Jalen Ramsey Yeah, he was drafted as the most talented Whoa. prospect in like two years or three years when he was drafted. And then he's three all pros, five pro bowls, you know, Jalen Ramsey's incredibly good. Well, if you look at Tom Brady, for example, people would call him a diva. 
of sorts because of his antics at times and, you know, when things aren't going well and this and that. But ultimately, you know, Tom Brady's playing for $11 million this year, okay? And he's done that wherever he's been. Um, and I'm not going to – the whole Giselle thing is irrelevant to me um, because, you know, I mean, when – you know, with a guy like Tom Brady, he's willing to sacrifice. Now look at what Cooper Cup's doing for the Rams. You know, in light of all these thirty million a year contracts that wide receivers are getting, and Cup arguably put forth the greatest single season in NFL history as a wide receiver, or certainly one of the top three. And he said, "I just want to do something that's fair to me and the team." I mean, that's where you're dealing with the salary cap and you're dealing with the, you know, these are guys that want to win rings. If you really want to ring, win rings, you have to be willing to compromise. Yeah. I, I'm, I have a kind of a, kind of a more of a macro kind of economic view of that. And like, I, I never expect a player to take less if they do. I appreciate it. But I, I also look at it that, you know, this is all framed within labor and ownership negotiations. And, you know, the salary cap is a measure that by definition is, you know, there to protect the interests of the owners. And, you know, they, they put this into place and that salary cap escalates, you know, every year, but it's still this negotiated percent, um, you know, uh, of the revenues. But the way I look at it is, you know, players maximizing their value puts more pressure on organizations and the league as a whole. So like in terms of this whole labor negotiation, so like if players habitually just took less, you know, quote unquote, to, to let the team build a better team, it makes it easier for teams to build better rosters. Okay. But it also that the challenge that teams face is a point of pressure when it comes to negotiating that collective bargaining agreement. And so I guess I, and I don't know if I make, if I'm <laughs> articulating this well or not, but it's this kind of larger scale thing where it's like that the owners have, have kind of created the structure of a salary cap where we look at the players and put the onus on the players. You're the ones who need to, you know, compromise in order to win, but the ownerships don't have to, you know, the ownerships just get to sit back with that salary cap in place and let the fans complain about how greedy the players are because they won't take less. Uh, but the ownerships can just say, well, it's a salary cap. I can't pay more, you know, and it, they've, they've structurally created a setup where the player, everyone puts that responsibility on the players. If there were not a salary cap, then you could, you know, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating for that because I get what that would do potentially in terms of salaries and, you know, but if there were not a salary cap, then fans could look at both the players saying, Hey, why aren't you willing to take less? And also at the owners, why are you willing to pay more? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but the, because of the existence of a salary cap, the public opinion is all or mostly focused on the players. So for that reason, like I just, and again, this is kind of that sociologist in me. I look at when a player is maximizing and getting as much as they can, that is helping to keep the pressure in those labor negotiations so that the players, so that the owners, you know, 
have to, if they want to be competitive, you know, kind of keep increasing that cap. Um, so, you know, I know that doesn't, that I get, I get how having someone like Tom Brady, who's willing to pay play for, throughout his career way under market gives a competitive advantage. Um, but just that larger kind of part of me that, that kind of tends to lean in the favor of labor in labor negotiations tends to side with players on this one. Yeah, I, I go in the same direction where over time I've learned to be pro-labor. The Tom Brady thing that's interesting is Tom Brady values the competitive edge over sometimes like 20 to $30 million, and I find that really fascinating. And there's literally never been another Tom Brady ever in sports. <laughs> like, it's weird right. how that one works out. Yeah. And, you know, circling back to something Walter said earlier about like the engagement that he gets from from fans too is like, not always is like writing and, and the, the media that we do here, because we're all different forms of media, but all together, like doing similar types of stuff. Like, it's not always to instigate change. Sometimes it's for storytelling, which I really love to do storytelling around this. And sure. Sometimes it's, it's for entertainment. Like, you know, I call it the Charles Barkley equation, which is Charles Barkley is incredibly entertaining. And also he's picked the Mavericks to win every game of their series so far. So like <laughs> sometimes intellectual analysis can be boring and sometimes entertainment can be not intellectual. And you got to yeah. straddle that line, how entertaining versus how informative do you want to be? And I've changed on that over the years. I used to say, I want to use my platform to make sports fans a little bit smarter. And I'm like, well, I can do that, but I can also make it entertaining so that people want to engage with it. And it's more fun for me if you make it entertaining. So absolutely, like that's, that's the balance there. And all of that is what having a nice little platform to talk about and maybe like make a little bit of change on the side is, is a pretty cool thing to have. And when you're instigating change, the first thing that's important is dollar value. Cause <laughs> I had to learn that lesson as a child because uh, when you grow up in San Diego, all your sports teams will leave you and none of them will ever be good. And all of your, all the athletes that you worship will die young because it's an incredibly dark San Diego sports curse that we have. So, you know, you learn that at a younger age, like, yeah, this stuff is all kind of dumb and you'll drive yourself crazy when you invest emotionally, when the, the Padres who similar to you, Joe, like I root for the Padres as a way to connect to home. Like, until 2020 in the pandemic and an expanded playoff, they'd never made the playoffs in my memorable lifetime. I was four years old the last time they made the playoff <laughs> before 2020. So you root for losers. You root for the team that has the worst record in the – in. I, I've actually now, because I live in Sacramento, so I root for the Padres who over the last 40 years have the worst record of any Major League Baseball team and the Kings who in the last 20 years have the worst record of any professional basketball team. So <laughs> it's, it's a weird choice that I've made in that engagement, but it's it's fun in that way. Like I, I enjoy rooting for losers and I love that. I don't know if you guys saw this because you guys are more like big football people, but when the Minnesota Timberwolves beat the Clippers in the play-in game and they were throwing jerseys and crying on the court and running around like crazy people, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world because I'm like, those people have <laughs> optimism and adjust their expectations to right. – we won a play in game and we're going to stand, we're going to jump up on the table. We're going to throw our jerseys in the crowd. We're going to cry. We're going to hug. We're going to celebrate this thing. Like we just won a championship. Right. And I thought that's really cool. Cause 
for 30 years, that is their championship. It's only the right. third time in the, the franchise's entire history they've eliminated someone from the playoffs, and you know, even if a, it's not really the playoffs. What's kind of unfortunate in my mind is that there there are some fans out there who are fans of you know teams you know that have won lots of championships that will look at that team and say, oh, you guys are a bunch of losers. You're celebrating this. Uh, how pathetic, you know, right. you know, we have real championships. And then back in my mind, I'm like, okay, you're a dude who like is a fan of this team. You didn't win those championships right. and you're, but you're some, you've got this bravado about how, you know, you're the, you know, that you uh, are this winner and these fans who are celebrating this playing game are losers. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, that 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 somehow accepting that as a cause for celebration makes you a loser, and I'm like, no, it makes you uh, a winner at life who recognizes that life is too short not to enjoy those moments when they come, as fleeting as they can be. You have yeah. championships, but I have self awareness, right? Like I say, <laughs> I uh, when people say that, I'm like, hell yeah, I'm a loser. I act 